This is Kate Jabot with SITREP. This week, as the aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth prepares for her first operational deployment, we ask what is the strategy behind future British naval deployments to the Indo-Pacific region? In my view, the UK can play a modest but important role in upholding the rules-based order. But for this to be truly effective, it needs a clear vision and strategy. As UK charities launch an appeal to help those who are most vulnerable to COVID-19 around the world, we find out about the situation in Yemen, where one in four people who get coronavirus die of the disease. It is the most severe humanitarian crisis in the world and one of the few places in the world that if humanitarian assistance is not provided, people will die. We report from Germany on the anniversary of the Potsdam Conference, which shaped post-war Europe. And we know about coals from Newcastle, but why a gift of cheese to the French contingent serving with NATO's Allied Rapid Reaction Corps may have cemented the Entente Cordiale. The aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth is to start her maiden deployment early next year and there's been huge speculation that she will sail for international waters near China. There's been no official confirmation on this from the MOD, but this week we did get glimpses into the future of the carrier and her strike group and British naval ambition in the Pacific, as Tim Cooper explains. Just where will the first deployment take HMS Queen Elizabeth and her carrier task group? This is the best indication so far from a former Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, talking last year. The first operational mission of HMS Queen Elizabeth will include the Mediterranean, the Middle East and the Pacific region. This statement was widely reported at the time to mean waters near China in response to the People's Republic's continued rise in naval operations. During an online webinar this week, hosted by the International Institute for Strategic Studies, this glimpse into current Royal Navy thinking from Fleet Commander Vice Admiral Jerry Kidd. Our ambition is to be absolutely persistent and forward based there. Um, maybe with a carrier strike group or maybe not. We'll have to see. So certain ambition for a UK continuing presence in the Indo-Pacific region, leading some to speculate about future long-term basing of a carrier there. Much more likely, more deployments to the region, and what's certain, they'll be conducted with allies. F-35s from the US Marine Corps going on HMS Queen Elizabeth's first deployment. This we know. Elements of the carrier strike group, frigates or destroyers, could well come from other allied nations. The UK's been contributing to the US carrier strike group in this way for some time now. Take 2014, a British Time 45 helping the US carrier George Bush in its response to IS. Um, so I'm a great fan of the combined carrier strike group uh, methodology. I think it provides a, a complementary suite of capabilities. Um, we've integrated between the US and the UK for, for a number of years, particularly on carrier development. And, and I think, as I said earlier, the United States Marine Corps embarkation next year just signposts for much, uh, to a much more rich future. Wherever the carriers go from their first deployment onwards, they'll fly the flag for Britain. And for a country out of the EU looking to project a global role, the Indo-Pacific region might prove an attractive zone of operation to showcase what the UK can offer. Tim Cooper reporting there. Well, tensions in the region are rising. This week, the US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo described China's pursuit of offshore resources in parts of the South China Sea as completely unlawful. 
China, which has been building military bases on artificial islands in the area for years, said the US deliberately distorts facts and international law. Well, Lin Keok, Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, gave Paul Osborne her assessment of China's strategy in the region. It's hoping to increase its uh, strategic depth and reach to be able to defend against adversaries, namely the United States, its main concern, as well as to protect access to a vital waterway. What all that has done has been to deter other claimants in the South China Sea from putting up a strong resistance to uh, China's actions uh, because they tend to be smaller countries that are intimidated. The general perception in Southeast Asia is that while Washington was asleep at the wheel, you know, China was able to, in fact, conjure up these large artificial islands and present the world with a fess accompli. You mentioned this sense in Southeast Asia that the United States has been, as you put it, asleep at the wheel. The US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has now said he thinks China's actions in the region are completely unlawful. That suggests that perhaps the United States is preparing to be a more active participant. What you say is absolutely correct. I mean, it is stepping up. It has sought to step up its freedom of navigation operations and presence operations. China likes to claim that the United States is stirring up trouble in the South China Sea, that its allies are stirring up trouble in the South China Sea. I think it's quite clear that this is not a matter of outside powers stirring up trouble uh, in the South China Sea just for China. It's not about US-China competition per se. It's really about upholding a rules-based order. We've now had reports here in the UK that Britain is considering sending an aircraft carrier to the region. How would that go down in Beijing? Well, Beijing does not like, obviously, um, the presence of naval vessels in what it considers to be its own lake. So it would not be welcomed by Beijing at all. We saw the United Kingdom actually deploy the HMS Albion in uh, September 2018 to challenge China's illegal straight baselines around the Paracels, which is uh, a group of features to the west of the South China Sea. And even then, China called uh, the UK's actions uh, provocative. I, I suspect that with the deployment of an aircraft carrier by the United Kingdom, China's objections might be far more vociferous and far more loud. Uh, so it's clearly not going to be welcome. However, I think um, it might be something that would be welcomed by other countries in the region as a sign of the UK's commitment to uh, the rules-based order and stability and peace in the region. Alongside talk of the possible deployment of an aircraft carrier, we've also had senior figure in the Royal Navy talk about an ambition to return to the Indo-Pacific region. How significant is that? Well, I think it's very significant because, in my view, the UK can play a modest but important role in upholding the rules-based order. So as a naval power, the UK can you know, continue to regularly assert maritime rights and freedoms. This is important because as a matter of law, this will ensure that passage and high sea freedoms are not lost through lack of use. And as a matter of practice, it will help to ensure that international waters of the South China Sea do not become a Chinese lake. But I think a very important thing that it should be thinking about is having a strong and clear strategy in the region 
The deployment of aircraft carriers is important, but for this to be truly effective in signaling that the UK is a serious player in the region, it needs a clear vision and strategy for the Indo-Pacific. Lynn Keok there. Well, earlier I spoke to Vice Admiral Sir Jeremy Blackham, a former Deputy Commander-in-Chief Fleet and our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. First, I asked Vice Admiral Blackham about deploying the Queen Elizabeth to the Far East. Well, I think the government has already made clear that it's got an intention to do so. I think it has to judge the timing of it quite carefully because it's worth remembering that we only have a one-shot option with the Queen Elizabeth carrier is not yet ready. And there's obviously a limit to the time that you can support a ship uh, that far from its UK base. So the question really is whether you want to make a demonstration deployment uh, to indicate support for the United States or whatever it is, or whether you want to try and maintain some more permanent presence, which would require be required to be at a lower level so that you can sustain it. In, in other words, the key issue, as always in these things, is what is your political objective? Mm, and Christa, if she is deployed, would she operate alone or do you think she would join an American deployment? She'll do both. She will go to the uh, Far East, the Pacific as well, and then she'll have her own programme. And then perhaps if there's an exercise, well, an exercise taking place, an American exercise, she'll perhaps join in that. Don't forget that some of the aircraft that will be on board will probably United States Marine Corps. And that may also de decide what sort of exercise it is, like a, supporting a, a landing ashore somewhere, rather like the one that's going on in Taiwan uh, this week. You just don't go and do one job. And Jeremy, do you think elements of this carrier strike group, such as frigates and destroyers, could come from allied nations? Well, I think it's worth remembering that we've operated so often with the Americans. I had myself, when I was commanding a carrier, joined in with an American uh, carrier group, and we can slip in and out with ease. Uh, and it follows from that, really, that as far as escorts are concerned, it doesn't particularly matter which nation they come from. Uh, I think there's an important... A political signal in making sure that you have your own ships involved, but it's not particularly critical uh, from which nation the escorts actually come, uh, because we have a more or less seamless method of operation with the Americans. And Christopher, this force protection demands more than vessels, doesn't it? Where does the Navy get the ship's companies from? Well, there's always the problem at the moment with the Royal Navy. In theory, the, the Navy can put together a ship's company for Queen Elizabeth how long it can maintain that for Queen Elizabeth and also the surface escorts that she would need, destroyer and frigate escorts, is another matter. The Navy is, is short of people. Mm. And so, Jeremy, if you were asked to recommend to the Secretary of State uh, the fleet to maintain the UK's integrity as a trading nation and lead maritime element in NATO, would your recommendation look like the one we have? Well, with the caveat that I've already entered, that it depends what you're trying to achieve and over what sort of period, yes, I think it probably would, certainly in the first instance. As Christopher has already said, there is a planned deployment going on anyway, which would consist of a carrier and a small number of escorts and, quite importantly, support ships, tankers, store ships, ammunition ships and so forth. If you wanted to sustain this over a much longer period then you would certainly have to reconsider the size and shape of the force in the way that Christopher has already implied. And just on another subject, Sir Jeremy, a group of senior British defence figures has called for NATO to overhaul its approaches to Russia and China. They say the alliance needs a coherent policy on China. Do you agree? Well, of course I agree. It's almost impossible to conduct um, serious operations 
if you don't have shared political objectives uh, and, and shared military objectives, should it come to that? Um, and it's not at all clear to me that NATO as a whole has got a coherent policy. Certainly, you can't have ships operating together from different nationalities if they're not pursuing the same goals. Um, and that is possibly the most difficult part of putting uh, such a group together. Of course, all of these decisions are being made when there's a global pandemic. And we spoke to the Armed Forces Minister, James Heapy, on Forces News about the long-term impact of that around the world. There is no doubt that always following a time of crisis comes a time of economic instability. Always at times of economic instability, there are times of insecurity. And when there's insecurity, defence is at its busiest. So we are, of course, preparing for the worst. That's what we do. It doesn't mean that we're expecting anything to happen necessarily. It just means that we are going into an uncertain world and defence necessarily has to plan for all eventualities. And that means that whilst the temptation would be to pause and reflect on six months of phenomenal effort from our armed forces, the reality is that those armed forces are already recocking, retraining and preparing for whatever's next. And Christopher, planning for the future of defence must be particularly hard at the moment. Well, it is hard because the government said it's looking for a new defence review. There is the essential requirement in theory uh, is that government decides what its foreign policy is going to be and its home policy and its security policy in general. It goes over to the MOD and it says, OK, now what have you got and what can you provide and what would you need to, 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 get, to be a guarantor of those policies? Now, this is a very sort of sophisticated way of doing things and it takes a long time. You've got to bring in other members of, uh, of NATO to, to bring in them in because if you got into a very, very big confrontation you're operating not by yourself. It's not whether the United Kingdom can send a, uh, its own aircraft, operational aircraft carrier to sea and scare the life out of a potential opposition. It's a far more sophisticated thing than that. And it's, it, 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 you, know, you become part of the, a concert of the willing. That's how you must think that there are all sorts of things. It's not just a question of let's have a look at James fighting ships and see how many ships we've got now and his sailors we've got and see whether we can do the job. We don't know what the job is. That's one of the problems. And in that light, Sir Jeremy, what are your hopes for the future of the Navy and what the integrated review will decide? It takes a long time to change the size and shape of armed forces. It takes several years to build a ship, for example, so that you constantly need to think uh, when you're designing a future force that you won't actually have it for something between five and ten years. It's very easy to get rid of existing capabilities and say they're no longer valid, but most of them are adaptable to other purposes. Uh, so you have to plan in the first instance uh, to do what you can with what you've got whilst looking ahead and reshaping your force over a period of time. The ships currently building for the Navy won't be in full service until nearly 2030. Uh, now, it could be done more quickly if you threw more money at it. It is a complex business. It involves retraining personnel. It involves recruiting different kinds of personnel. Uh, and it probably involves uh, looking at different support arrangements. So you've got two tasks on hand. One is to make the best of what you've got for whatever purposes the government decides. And the other is to move ahead and plan for whatever sort of future people think is most likely. But at the root of it all is the importance of clarity about what it is that the government wants to be able to achieve. And that is, I'm afraid, what many defensive views 
have failed to provide. Are you hopeful of this one? I'm always hopeful. (laughs) Sir Jeremy Blackham, thank you very much. This is Zitrap. The UK Disasters Emergency Committee has launched an appeal to help those countries which are most vulnerable to COVID-19 around the world, including Yemen, where the disease has added to the suffering of people already facing hunger and conflict. At a recent UN aid conference, Britain pledged £160 million of aid to the country. However, campaigners and opposition parties have criticised the government's recent decision to resume arms sales to Saudi Arabia, despite concerns they could be used against civilians in Yemen, where the government is battling a long-running Houthi insurgency. A review found isolated incidents of possible violations, but no pattern of non-compliance and no clear risk of future serious breaches. Only half of the health facilities in the country are operating, and Alexander Matthew, Executive Director at the British Red Cross, said around a quarter of people who get COVID-19 die of the disease. I mean, there are multiple challenges here. If you have symptoms, you may not have information about what's the best way to behave or even to know the difference between those symptoms and a just normal respiratory disease. So you may not be protecting yourself or the people around you in the way that is necessary. Secondly, even if you are suspecting something is seriously wrong, you probably will not have access to clean water, nor will the people around you. So you can't do the very essential protection, wash your hands, then let's assume that you think you do need to go for treatment. There's a high probability you won't be able to get to a medical centre. Fuel is very expensive at the moment. It's hard to get. Most people can't afford it. But let's say you even get to a medical facility. Let's say you're lucky enough that one of them is close enough and it's functioning. There's a high probability that there won't be the equipment, the beds or the medicines necessary to treat you. And that's why we're seeing these stark figures around Well, WHO, World Health Organization, is saying that one in four people diagnosed with COVID in Yemen will die. And what about the testing? Is there much being done in the country? It has been low. Uh, It will improve as testing kits arrive. But right now, I think we can safely say there is a huge disparity between the numbers we are seeing and the actual cases. In which case, it must be virtually impossible to assess the real spread of the disease. Well, people are talking about one million people who have uh, COVID in Yemen. I suspect that, you know, that, that can't be a confirmed figure, uh, but it's, it may well be an accurate figure. Social distancing is very difficult. Immune systems are compromised by, low, by very poor food security. Many, I mean, Yemen, as you may have seen last year, was on the verge of famine in, in parts of the country and very near famine in quite a few parts in the country. So with immune systems low, poor access to clean water, it's highly likely that it is spreading fast. So we hear the figure of one million, we can't confirm it. But I think we can safely say it's a lot more than the official numbers. And what about the medical facilities themselves? Have they actually been targeted in the conflict? Well, it is strictly against international humanitarian law to target medical facilities. Some, for sure, some have been damaged uh, in in the conflict. But that's not the only reason they're not functioning. 
So some are not functioning just because the doctors haven't been paid for four or five years and people stop turning up to work. It's the same for the nurses. Uh, some are not functioning because they simply have no equipment and no medicines. Therefore, they have nothing to offer people who turn up. Some are not functioning because, it, well, anyway, it's a huge, it's, it's a large mountainous country. Roads have been damaged, bridges have been damaged, and some medical facilities are just no longer accessible. So there's a range of reasons why medical facilities across the country are not fun functioning. And what do you, the Red Cross, want? Well, there are a number of things that need to happen. You need to get a large amount of aid into Yemen urgently. Food, medical support, uh, we are talking about 80% of a population of 28, 29 million in need of humanitarian assistance. But it needs to be a massive operation to reach these number of people. That's one. Secondly, the ports need to function. Uh, Yemen relies on imports and the major ports in Yemen, the major one, Al-Khadida, has not been functioning at higher than 50% for some time now. So these ports really need to be rehabilitated to bring in the essential items. Third, all factions in the conflict in Yemen need to grant access to neutral and impartial humanitarian organizations such as the International Committee of the Red Cross and the Yemeni Red Crescent so all parts of the country can be reached. Fourth, all parties need to observe international humanitarian law and that means letting in essential items into the country, it means granting humanitarian access uh, and it means protecting and not targeting medical facilities. And finally, of course, you need a peace process that's durable. That is the real answer. And right now, how concerned are you for the civilians in Yemen and their future? Well, I would say it is the most severe humanitarian crisis in the world and one of the few places in the world that if humanitarian assistance is not provided, people will die. I mean, it, it is severe. It is as severe as it gets. It was terrible a year ago. Now it is even worse because the amount of aid money into the country has reduced. Remittances into the country, which were an absolute lifeline, given that most people are not getting salaries anymore, have gone down by 80%. The country's main export oil is not bringing in the revenue it was before. And you have COVID-19. So we are talking as bad as it gets. That was Alexander Matthew, Executive Director at the British Red Cross. Now, it's 75 years since the Potsdam Conference, a summit that marked the end of the Second World War and the start of the Cold War. The meeting on the outskirts of Berlin was the last in a trio of summits between the Allied powers that had defeated Nazi Germany. It's where, in July 1945, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and later his successor Clement Attlee met American President Harry Truman and the Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. Well, the German academic and historian Dr Jürgen Liu has been speaking to Rob Olver and argues that Potsdam heralded a new world order. It must have been pretty interesting to be inside this room here and follow the talks and see the mood of the people here. In July 1945, says historian Dr Jürgen Liu, they were the world's most powerful men. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, American President Harry Truman and the Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. They were the so-called Big Three and their countries had just defeated Nazi Germany. Churchill mistrusted Stalin. Truman thought that he got on well with both, with the British and with the Russians. And Stalin, he never got on well with anybody. Now they met in the last Kaiser's lavish country house in Potsdam on the outskirts of Berlin. On the agenda was the future map of Europe and ending the war against Japan. But the harmonious nature of two previous Allied summits in Tehran and Yalta had gone. 
so too had a common interest. The only thing that worked together was in the anti-Hitler coalition. There was no longer an anti-Hitler coalition. The cooling in relations didn't prevent agreements. Germany was reduced in size and divided into Allied occupation zones. Poland lost territory to the Soviet Union, but gained some from Germany. Millions of German refugees fled to the new Western occupation zones. Almost every German has relatives stemming from East Prussia or somewhere else. That's a result from the Potsdam Conference. At Potsdam, Truman learned that America had successfully tested an atomic bomb. He quickly told Churchill, but waited a week before informing Stalin. The Russians already knew. When Stalin was here, he gave the order to develop this weapon in Russia. So was this the moment that sparked the division of Germany and Europe and the Cold War? Jürgen Liu thinks that it would have happened anyway. We have two systems the free thinking of the Western world and the communist thinking. The difficulties between two systems grew bigger and bigger, even without the atomic bomb. It was only years, I guess, that there was a clash and that there was then the beginning of the Cold War. Britain's part in the Potsdam Conference was disrupted by a shock general election result. Churchill had to leave halfway through, replaced as Prime Minister by Clement Attlee. Everyone knows who the big three are. For the British, Churchill, never Attlee. A nice little man. That's what Truman thought of Attlee and that's what Stalin thought of Attlee. What Potsdam highlighted was Britain's waning influence. In the corridors, the serious talking was between the Americans and the Russians. The United States was economically huge and Russia was a huge military power. Britain wasn't an economic power, needed the help of America and wasn't no longer a huge military power. That's the consequence of the war. A declaration at the end of the Potsdam Conference stated the Allies' intentions. The German people were to be allowed to reconstruct on a democratic and peaceful basis. Stalin secured German reparations. But what Potsdam really established, says historian Jürgen Liu, was a new world order. The Soviets gained a lot of influence. The Americans gained the superpower state in the Western world. The British, I'm not quite sure. That was Dr Jürgen Liu ending that report by Rob Olver. Christopher Lee, what's your assessment of Potsdam's significance? It's the way that Europe looked and was going to look. It's also interesting that they'll be talking there about Attlee and Stalin and Truman said a nice little man, but we don't know anything about him. It was pretty insulting. But what they didn't look is standing behind Attlee. There was this huge figure, I mean, a big stout man with glasses, small round glasses. And that man was Ernest Bevin, not Anirin Bevin, who founded the National Health Service, but Ernest Bevin. And he was the advisor to Attlee. And Attlee was well on the ball because of Ernest Bevin. And Ernest Bevin, if it hadn't been for Ernest Bevin, I suspect that NATO wouldn't have been formed as easily as, as it was formed. Truman uh, had never met Stalin and never would never meet him again. And so this sense of animosities and suspicions uh, were going to be sitting there. And once you didn't have Churchill at anything, 
then you thought, well, why are we holding this conference if you haven't got Churchill? Now, French soldiers serving in Gloucester have been thanked for their role during the ongoing coronavirus crisis with a double Gloucester cheese presented to them by the historic cathedral city. The cheese wheel was gifted to the French contingent serving with NATO's Allied Rapid Reaction Corps ahead of Bastille Day, France's National Day of Celebration. Rosie Layden has this report. Servicemen and women from the Ark departing their Gloucestershire headquarters to serve as specialist planners at the height of the coronavirus crisis. Now, Gloucester has said thank you to the French soldiers involved in this with a special gift of cheese. Major Emmanuel expressed his gratitude. Oh, it's quite uh, special because of France is like as a country of the 400 uh, cheese. So we are quite well known for that. So it was a little bit unexpected to, to receive a cheese for this uh, special day, but it was a, a lovely gift and we will uh, taste, uh, try it, uh, I think, uh, yeah, today with the French contingent and we will compare it with uh, our French uh, cheese and who knows who can win. Do you know, I'm sure you do, that the local custom is to roll these cheese wheels down the hill and chase them. Do you do anything similar to that en France? Oh, definitely not. Uh, I went there yesterday. Uh, I have seen the hill and uh, I was not scared, but it's a, it's a crazy race. I think such races doesn't really exist in France. You have to be a very, I don't know, brave uh, or may, maybe something like that to do that or to be a little bit crazy. So yeah. maybe more British people than French. <laughs> I don't know. That was Major Emmanuel talking to Rosie Laid and uh, Christopher Lee. Uh, the French are serving their double Gloucester then alongside more traditional French cheeses as part of their Bastille Day celebrations. A battle of the cheeses then? Well, I, this idea that everybody knows that the French have got loads of cheeses, a bit of brie, a bit of camembert, and that's about it as far as most people are concerned. I mean, we can make too much of cheese. A bit of cheddar with a piece of apple and apple pie. <laughs> Can't be beat. <laughs> That's all from me, Kate Chabot, and from Christopher Lee, and all of my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS Sitrep. While you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash sitrep. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.